specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? The question, simple. It is a context-dependent decision. The answers stun the nation. It should not be hard to condemn genocide. One university president resigns. Dozens of lawmakers call for more. Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart is here live. One of the highest reaching and longest lasting infiltrations. Meetings on Brickle, Miami spy story. A U.S. ambassador now accused as Cuba's agent for decades. Hear from a former co-worker and former friend, Emilio Gonzalez, with us live. Miami Wilds gets real. Do not encroach on endangered species. A tourist theme park at the zoo goes to a vote this week. It was a much larger project initially, but have scaled it back in a way. The people most passionate for and against are here live. The big news of the week and a surprise dive into Art Week all this hour, this week in South Florida. Good morning. Hello, hello. Welcome. I'm Glenna Milberg. We begin with the call to resign, and one already did, the presidents of UPenn, Harvard, and MIT, who suggested that calls for genocide, specifically genocide of Jewish people, may be acceptable in some contexts. You could see the, what, shock, really, on the faces of members of Congress in that meeting Tuesday. What might have been a committee meeting that went all but unnoticed by the general public instead became a national scandal. Three leaders of three prestigious Ivy League universities could not bring themselves to condemn, without condition, calls for mass murder. Watch. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct? Yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. Yes. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. So is your if testimony it, that it, you will not answer yes? If it uh, is, if the, yes speech or becomes, no. if the speech becomes conduct, it can be harassment, yes. That meeting of the House Higher Education and Workforce Committee was called to examine increasing anti-Semitism on college campuses. Late this week, 72 members of Congress signed a letter calling for all three presidents to resign. South Florida Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart was one of them, and he is here now to get into that and so much more with us. Congressman, good morning and welcome. Thank you, Glenn. Always a pleasure. Always ours. All right, so the letter that you and others sent was on Friday. Saturday, UPenn President Liz McGill resigned. Right after that, the Board of Trustees chair resigned. Uh, we've yet to see what results might come from the other two university presidents. But first, I want to just get your perspective on that meeting. Uh, you were not on that committee, so you, I know you weren't there. But, but what transpired there and the fallout? Yeah, I, I, I've seen uh, parts of that uh, testimony, and it's frankly 
beyond shocking. And again, um, and, and here's the problem, that there are serious consequences for that attitude of allowing, and I would actually add promoting anti-Semitism in our, in our universities, in our education system. And we are seeing it across the country, where uh, if you're a Jewish student right now in a university in the United States, or frankly, if you're a Jew, anywhere in this country right now, you feel, frankly, unsafe. And that is totally unacceptable. But that's not by chance, Glenna. It's because it's been institutionalized and even taught by um, some of our uh, universities, actually most of our universities, and also even entertainment. And it, it's kind of been a cool thing to be anti-Semitic, uh, and it's just not acceptable because the consequences can be deadly. I just want to sort of go on the record with hate in all forms is unacceptable to all thinking and feeling people, obviously. Um, and that includes on college campuses hate toward anyone else, be it Islamophobia, uh, gays, blacks, name it. Um, but this particular problem, studies show, has been gobsmackingly increasing. And I want to read from the letter a little bit, kind of to your point. Um, the letter in part says, some of your presidents took to social media to clarify responses after the extended public backlash. They confirmed opposition to genocide, which should not have required cl uh, clarification, the letter says, but often little clarity on your campus's true commitment to protecting vulnerable students. What have you found, not just with these three, you and your colleagues have, have been studying other universities, prestigious Ivy League universities, well-known universities. What is happening? Oh, it's unfortunately very, very widespread. Uh, and it's, it's, it's been kind of a institutionalized, accepted thing to be anti-Semitic, uh, to call for the destruction of Israel, uh, to criticize um, Israel and, and to, you know, things that you hear all the time, that it's a apartheid state, uh, asking for the boycott of Israel. These are things that have been going on in uh, education institutions around this country for now a few decades, frankly. And some folks have had the attitude, well, yeah, it's not, it's not good, but so what? Well, unfortunately, we're seeing what so what means, right? Uh, we're seeing folks who are actually demonstrating in favor of Hamas, uh, who are threatening Jewish students, uh, who are threatening Jews around the country. In other words, our institutions of higher education and some other high schools and, and schools as well, by the way, Glenna, have been essence teaching hatred against Jews and institutionalizing hatred against the Jews and actually even worse, because when you hear these chants, that's a few may not understand what it means, but these chants that basically mean kill the Jews, wipe out Israel, and it's normal, and it's actually pushed by institutions of higher learning, well, the consequences can be quite deadly. And obviously, it's something that we can't accept. If that was done to any other group, the things that are said about Jews and accepted uh, these attacks on Jews, including Jewish students that have been attacked, uh, if that was done to any other group, there would be mass outrage. And so that's why we are insisting on changes to the attitude of these institutions starting from the top. And how, in a congressional manner, would you advocate, and I know there is a push in the Senate, I believe led by South Florida Senator Marco Rubio, to defund or pull federal funding from institutions? And, and I wonder, I, I, I want to say that you all in uh, South Florida's Republicans have all signed on to a resolution, same in the House, is that right? 
Yeah, but I mean, it's actually, I, I will tell you in all fairness, uh, and I'm very proud of all my colleagues. Uh, there's one colleague in Florida uh, who actually even voted against a, a resolution condemning Hamas, I believe. But 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 there's very uh, strong bipartisan support for making sure that uh, that that we stand up against this aggressive, you know, frankly racist, dangerous attitude that has been institutionalized. And so it's not a partisan issue. Uh, there are, there's a, a group of Democrats, uh, the more radical Democrats that are, I would, I, you know, that are very, very literally anti-Semitic. Um, but, but, but again, uh, in all truthfulness, the South Florida delegation of Congress, both parties, have been very consistent and very strong about standing up against this kind of hate. Uh, and we see the consequences of accepting this kind of anti-Semitism. It's not permissible. By the way, before the attacks in Israel, I also defunded institutions in the bill that funds of you know foreign affairs, which I chair that subcommittee of appropriations. I defund institutions that are anti-Semitic, that call for the destruction of Israel. And so I'm hoping that my colleagues also from the Democrats will stand with me to not accept this kind of attitude, not only in the United States, but we should not be funding institutions, groups, associations, uh, including parts of the United Nations that are equally uh, uh, anti-Semitic and dangerous and attack Israel every single day. Uh, 100 percent. I don't want to leave anyone out. Every one of South Florida's congressmen yep. and women stand firmly against hate and and for the promotion of peace um, and absolutely against anti-Semitism in word and in deed. I, I want to ask you, uh, do you, if there comes to pass a resolution that defunds some of these universities because of these type of actions, how, and speech, how, what kind of criteria do you put in that, that allows for free speech, frankly, because I think you heard the university presidents really going toward, well, you know, speech, this speech is protected. Yeah, and free speech is essential and it has to be protected. But unfortunately, these institutions are not allowing for free speech. They actually censor free speech constantly, particularly uh, from individuals, for example, that are conservative. I mean, they don't allow them on campus. They allow for the harassment of, of those individuals and even groups on campuses uh, that, that might have a point of view different from the leadership. So um, free speech is essential, but th this is not free speech. What we're talking about is what is not accepted on any campus is hateful speech that goes after particular ethnic groups, uh, minority groups, um, except for, it seems, if you are Jewish, by the way, also if you are conservative. But we're talking about now anti-Semitism, which is on the rise. It has become dangerous and it is unacceptable for Jewish Americans or Jews from around the world to not feel safe on U.S. university campuses and not feel that they can speak out uh, because we've seen uh, case after case of individuals who have been punished, for example, even in their grades because they believe that Israel has the right to exist. Again, unacceptable. Free speech has to always prevail. But what we've seen on campuses is just the opposite, is shutting down speech uh, that fights against anti-Semitism or that believes that Israel uh, has the right to exist, et cetera, that is frankly censored or pressured. That is unacceptable. When we come right back, I want to just quickly get your thoughts on uh, Venezuela, elections, South Florida lawmakers very involved in those and what appears to be a reneging of a deal by Nicolas Maduro. So sit tight. We'll be right back with Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart.
Back now with South Florida Congressman Mario Diaz-Balart, Republican from Miami. Congressman, I want to talk a little bit about you and your fellow South Florida lawmakers throwing huge support behind a candidate opposing Venezuela's President Nicolas Maduro. Maria Karina Machado, uh, an opposition candidate who we see here on the screen waving right now, who appears to be finagled off now of a primary vote by the Maduro government. What are we watching here? Yeah, you know, what's amazing is that the Biden administration gave unilateral uh, uh, concessions, relaxing sanctions against the anti-American narco-terrorist regime in Venezuela um, with a promise from that regime that they would allow for free elections. Now, we warned them. I warned this administration publicly and privately not to give sanctions uh, a relief because we knew what was going to happen. And sure enough, then uh, there were primary elections. This amazing leader, Maria Corina Machado, won, you know, dramatic uh, support uh, to be the opposition candidate against Maduro in the elections. And now they've been, you know, saying that she can't run, that she can't participate in the elections. They've already attacked her and her people, by the way. No surprise. And what has been the response of the Biden administration? Nothing. You know, they haven't even snapped back, uh, snapped back the uh, concessions that they gave to the Maduro regime. It's, it's, this administration has been so dramatically incompetent uh, that it's actually creating a dangerous situation for the national security interests of the United States around the world and for people around the world. And so, so me, we should not be surprised that the world is in flames because of an administration that is beyond inept and feckless. All right, well, you know, in fairness, there is a philosophy of doing things another way, and these uh, lifting of yeah. oil sanctions in return for fair elections seem to many like, uh, like an interesting way to try to get there. Uh, deadline on that was November 30th, so what are we in, about 10 days ago. Um, and, and to your point, the, the sanctions remain lifted in the face of this move to move elections into a more favorable territory. Uh, it feels like, I, I just want to tell our viewers, um, half of the Venezuelan nationals who live in the United States live in South Florida, and many of them voted in this election. So this is very much a local story. Um, are we watching sort of a replay of what happened with opposition candidate Juan Guaido, who also followed this path with huge, uh, huge support from South Florida? Yeah, Juan Guaido was the head of the Legislative uh, Assembly, and, and the Constitution says that, that he, in essence, was the interim president. In this case, we have a woman who's been elected in a primary election, receiving massive support. Uh, and again, the Biden administration relaxed sanctions, um, in essence, hoping that this election would move forward. But we've seen that the Maduro regime has once again lied. The hard thing to understand, though, Lena, is how this administration continues to fall for these traps. And I would argue that they're not falling for the trap, that they're actually doing this to help the Maduro regime. Look, well, I, I'm not sure I want to go there with somebody here to... Well, they can't be either that or they're total, total idiots. And I don't... You know, how can you be so stupid to continue to give sanction relief? This is not the first sanctions that they have uh, that they have kind of weakened uh, to the Maduro regime. They did that, uh, you know, almost at the first year of this president after this president got elected. And, and the Maduro uh, regime laughs at this administration. The administration continues to look for ways to appease and please the Maduro regime. 
at least start pressuring the Maduro regime, start tightening, tightening sanctions. We haven't seen that. I'm hoping that we will see that. But again, this administration, if they tried to be uh, you know, harmful on purpose for our national security interests, they couldn't do a better job. I don't think they're doing it on purpose, maybe. But I'll tell you what, they're incredibly feckless and um, they can't be this should I say stupid, with all the respect that I try to give them, uh, this is hard to understand how they can be so feckless. Well, one day I really feel like we should get a little debate going so that I don't have to be in the position of defending either side, um, but uh, po point taken from the conservative viewpoint, Congressman, I want to um, just sort of put the puzzle piece into Maduro's threats to move into Guyana and and it really seems like some strategy is playing out here that I'm not quite sure I understand. Do you? Well, I mean, you know, uh, thugs will be thugs. Uh, it's very, very important that the United States make it very, very clear that that will not be accepted. Guyana is an ally of the United States. Um, uh, you know, they have found oil and natural gas. It looks like Maluto's trying to claim that for their, uh, for themselves, uh, because they've destroyed the natural gas and the oil industry in their own country. So, uh, but again, it's important that the United States stand up and say no. Heck, when you even have the UN. Speaking of feckless, right, saying that that's not acceptable. Uh, I hope that this administration has sent the, the, a clear message that th that will not be tolerated. You can't just do that uh, with impunity. But again, all of this is happening because they see, Maduro and others, see great weakness from the White House. I'm hoping that this administration, and I've told them this time and time again, will reconsider um, their, you know, frankly, really, really, really irresponsible attitudes and policies uh, show some leadership uh, to make sure that that doesn't happen. The last thing we need is another war now in this hemisphere. The world is in flames. Look, Lana, this is a very dangerous world always. That's not the fault of the United States. But when the United States doesn't lead or has poor leadership, then things get out of control. There's a reason why the world is up in flames. And I, I think that buck stops at the desk of President Biden and his administration. On this and so many other issues, we will be watching Congressman Mario diaz Balart. Always great to have you on the program. Always a pleasure, Glenna. Thank you. And next, double life, double cross. Miami, once again rocked by the arrest of a retired U.S. diplomat, now alleged to have been a Cuban agent all along. That's next. like a spy novel, a decades-long double life, a trusted, highly-placed State Department diplomat with security clearance accused of allegiance instead to Cuba and its revolution. The arrest of Miami-based Manuel Rocha this week, his reported confession to secretly using his U.S. government positions to support Cuba, leaves countless who know him and worked with him struggling to rethink his every word and action. And one of those is Emilio Gonzalez, familiar to so many as Miami's former city manager or former director of Miami International Airport. But before that, he directed U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services with the Department of Homeland Security and has served as director of Western Hemispheres Affairs at the National Security Council, a resume longer than this whole segment. Welcome, Emilio Gonzalez. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm so glad to, to have you here for this kind of inside look. I mean, you met Manuel Rocha in 1989. 
in, you said, Mexico City. Take Correct. us through, like, how do you know? And you had lunch with him last week. That, no, I had lunch with them. Or two weeks ago. No, uh, in, in March or April of oh, this year. Oh, months ago. Yeah, yeah. T yeah. Take us through that relationship that you well, had with him well, and, and the news that well, you got we, this we, week. we served together um, when we were both assigned to the U.S. Embassy in Mexico. Um, we also kept in touch in Washington when I would go. He would check in. We would meet periodically. He would, when I was on the National Security Council staff, he would come by and visit. And then after he retired, he settled in Miami, and we would meet regularly, regardless of what job he had. He would call me, "Hey, let's go have lunch. Let's get caught up." So, so it is, it is a, a long-standing relationship. And he'd call you as a friend and a colleague. Correct. And now you're thinking, "What did I say to him?" Well, I mean, me, what? me, and everybody else. Yeah. I mean, um, I. I I'm not surprised at what happened because I have the utmost respect for the Cuban Intelligence Service. They are probably in the top three in the world. They were organized and trained by the East German Stasi. They're focused on the United States and within the United States they're focused on the Cuban exile community. Yep. So the fact that they would undertake a project like this doesn't surprise me. The fact that they would recruit this individual is mm. stunning. And I think that's the word that all of our mutual friends and colleagues in Washington whom I've spoken to have used that same word, betrayal yeah. and stunning. You know, um, we think back, anyone who's kind of into the whole spy craft and the industry, you think back to Anna Belen Montes, Correct. who I guess recently got out of prison. Right. Um, even uh, at, right after the Brothers to the Rescue shoot-down, uh, Juan Pablo Roque. Correct. And. And so this is not a, a surprise story to South Florida, but in Manuel Roach's case, I mean, he fits sort of the South Florida demographic of exile age, uh, conservative, Republican, highly placed, smart, dapper. Um, no one kind of noticed anything other than that about him? Well, he was very good. And, and you know, in, in the intelligence world, uh, assets are recruited for any number of reasons. You know, you have, not everybody is an actual spy, right? And you, he's not charged with being a spy. No, he's right? not. And, yeah. I, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll talk to you about that. But, you know, you have agents that, for example, are used to spot potential agents. You have agents that maybe help logistically. You have disruption agents, which is one of my favorite ones, which is you recruit somebody within a community or an organization to be so bombastic and disruptive so as to discredit that target group. I and feel like I'm thinking of seven people right off the bat. I, I, I <laughs> could name a few right now. And, and, and then you have the people that actually go out and collect the information. Then you have the case officers that handle those collectors. Wow. And Listen, I, I've done it all. I've been a collector, I've been an, an analyst, I have been a custodian, I have been a reporter, and I read that indictment from the perspective of an intelligence officer, and, and I think it's quite damning, quite frankly. Damning in, not that, if he's not charged with being a spy, but damning in what way? Because the indictment reveals this meeting with an undercover agent in which he kind of spills the tea. But he, what did he really do? What did, what act, we don't know, I, I guess, is the question. We don't know the damage he's done, what he's, well, well, what the, the, secrets he's spilled. The, the damage assessment comes after. Hmm. Whether he negotiates a settlement, I, I seriously doubt that the federal government, the Department of Justice and the FBI are going to look at this six months from now and say, oh, gee, we made a mistake. Um, they've got something, and they've got something that they're laying out for him, and they're going to tell him, look, this is what we can prove. 
It may not be espionage, but it doesn't have to be espionage. Um, I think the, the heaviest charge he's got is conspiracy to act as an agent for a foreign government or something like that. But if you take all of those charges and you add them up, you know, you're looking at 50 or 60 years in prison, yeah. if not more. Yeah. The, the man is 73 years old. I, I'm assuming he doesn't want to spend the rest of his life in prison. So this is where the FBI and the Justice Department and he and his attorneys will sit and then they'll figure out what the next steps are. So he is being sort of a, a pawn to get to something bigger? Well, they all are. I mean, even, even Anna Belen Montes uh, negotiated a 25-year sentence as, as opposed to a life sentence mm. if she would tell the U.S. government everything she did. In this instance, if you look at the indictment and you look at the things that were done, it's, it's classic tradecrafts for espionage. You have a call from a random person who is, has given you his, his code name, if you will, I think it's Miguel. Um, you agree to a meeting and, and you pick the meeting because nobody will recognize you. You do a surveillance detection route to get to the meeting. You have signs and counter signs. You have clandestine trips. You know, you add all that up and even though it may look like, oh, this, there could be an explanation here, there can't. In and Brickell. I, so this was yeah. the meeting in Brickell and, twice. And I, yeah, and I think the federal government um, is onto something. There are few instances where people have been in prison for espionage. I'm thinking of the Hansen case or the uh, Ames case where you actually catch somebody servicing a dead drop or you catch somebody uh, with, with coded information in their apartment sending red messages. Red-handed. Exactly. That is espionage. Yeah. Everything else is, is just a compendium of charges, whether it's you're working as an, if you notice the verbiage, you're, you're working as an asset of a foreign government, not necessarily a spy. You're conspiring to be an asset of a foreign government. You're accepting payment. You lied to uh, federal law enforcement on multiple occasions. So he, he did everything you recognize you doing, but you were working legitimately for the United States. He did everything I did. Yeah. So, so for, for another government. So, so, so I get it. I mean, yeah. I get it. Uh, and, and, People will look at this and say, well, you know, he may be able to explain himself out of it. Maybe so. Maybe so. Uh, but I, I have to assume that even if you have something minor like getting a passport under false pretenses or something, you know, that's going to carry a, a jail sentence. And, yeah. if, and if you string all those out, it could be very, very damning uh, for, for him in his future. So one of the things I think that really strikes you when you read the indictment is the answers that are recorded that he's giving the undercover agent about his his real heartfelt unwavering commitment to Cuba and the revolution he he doesn't and, know he doesn't know this person this is right. obviously his new contact therefore you have to give your bona fides to this person but what what is what would be the motive what did he he didn't do it for money it doesn't seem there was no money involved like what is that why well you know classically in, in the intelligence world, people are recruited for power, sex, money, vanity, and vengeance. Let me write that down. Power, <laughs> sex, money. money, vanity, and vengeance. I think you can apply that argument to pretty much so, everything. So, so if you're if you're a very good intelligence service, you identify these frailties in individuals, and then they become targets. Anna Belen Montes being one of them. Um, there's a, a couple in the Department of State who's he he is sitting in a supermax prison right now. Um, he was uh, accused of spying for Cuba long after he retired from the State Department. So. Again, I... It's cool. Would ideology be on that list? Oh, absolutely. Is Anna Montes is ideological. If you're a spotter, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and most of them you would find in places like universities, right? Where you might see faculty members being very, very uh, passive towards the revolution or, or maybe very um, critical of U.S. policy to the Cuban revolution. Students who are like very, very vocal about U.S. policy towards Cuba. Those are individuals that could be recruited and you pass those names on to other people who will then take care of the recruitment and you're one step removed. You know, I think the more people know about spycraft, the more spotters <laughs> you have to, you know, see something, say something. Emilio Gonzalez, great to have you. This is so interesting. Thank we'll you be so watching much. this. You'll you'll keep in touch. Well there's I think there's still a lot that we need to learn. You'll be here. back. You'll be back. Thank you. Learn. All right, thank you. All right, uh, paving paradise or improving a parking lot? A decades-long plan for a theme park at Zoo Miami heads to a decision this week. Two of the most vocal for Miami Wilds and against it are right here live next. over how much to build and where is an entrenched chronic question and the details of the latest fight involved are at the zoo. More specifically, it's a plan to build a water park and a tourist draw to the property of Zoo Miami, a plan more than 20 years in the making and more recently more than controversial because of the sensitive environment surrounding the South Day location. The project and progress now hinges on a vote coming Tuesday at the County Commission. Two of the most vocal people about it right here to dive into the details. Ron McGill is the longtime communications director at Zoo Miami, but for this passion project, a very private citizen all on his own and South Florida's nationally known wildlife expert really. Paul Lambert is the principal developer of Miami Wilds whose amended lease for the project goes to a vote on Tuesday. Great to have you both right here for everyone to sort of hear it out and see what's going on. And Paul, let me ask you first, just so everyone is clear on what's happening with a project that started in 2006. <laughs> um, it goes, it, you have a lease, but it needs to be amended and extended. Why and what is that about? Yeah, so first of all, thanks for having us on. Glenn. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Miami Wilds a little bit broader, um, especially given the interest in the community right now. So, so uh, just to step back a bit, in, in October of 2020, the original lease was was approved by the county, the county commission, um, and then it took 20 months uh, between that time for the county and the federal government to do something called a release of deed restriction that they needed to that they felt that they needed in order to get the lease Who finalized. Who owns what? Who owns what? Uh, allowing the allowing the county to uh, to move forward and, and sign sign in our lease. So that's that that that, that was a requirement a requirement that the county felt that they needed in order to sign the lease. So 20 months from October, so finally October 2020. So finally in June, uh, late June of 2022, the mayor, the mayor is able to sign the lease and she signs the lease. And within several months after that, um, there's, a, there's, there's a notification from some environmental groups saying, hey, federal government, you didn't do your due diligence right. And that's the lawsuit. That's right. And that's what the lawsuit's about. So, and what it, what it refers to specifically is something called a Section 7 review under the Endangered Species Act. And they said the federal government didn't do the lawsuit, and the federal government and the county then admit that even after those, that 20-month period, they didn't, they didn't get it right. Okay. That they need to change it. What a perfect jumping off point for the person who is going to be talking about the endangered species there. If there are any, and I know that's kind of competing sciences that I've read, maybe you can clear that up, but this project is in the parking lot. So why is the environmentally sensitive 
surrounding areas important to you and to this project? Well, first of all, it has been proven there are endangered species there. Uh, several of them were discovered after 2006, after that vote was made. So this, uh, this time, there's things two, changing. 17 years yeah. have gone by. Yeah. Let me make this clear. I voted for the water park when it came out. I was part of that, that group that called people, said, vote for this, this is good for us. All the research that's happened in those last 17 years have told us, oh my gosh, we have animals that depend on this. Now, the narrative has been from the developer that says, this is simply a parking lot. We're not building in the forest. We're not cutting the forest. We're not hurting the forest. That's true. They're not cutting in the forest. They're not hurting the forest. But the parking lot is a parking lot by day. At night is a critical foraging area for endangered species. That's where they come to feed. Wait, where do they feed in the parking lot? They feed over the parking lot. They're feeding over the insects in the parking lot. That whole area is oh, like, oh, okay. and, 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 and the analogy I like to use is that, you know what? Yes, you can protect my house, okay? The forest is a house, we're not gonna hurt my house. However, if you eliminate my ability to go to Publix to get food to bring back to my family, I've got two choices, either move or to die. So that's, you know, that's a compelling argument if you are really into these endangered species and the sure. protection, which everyone kind of should be, but, and I'm sure you are too. Sure. Um, so when you hear that argument, it's not the parking lot, it's the feeding airspace. How do you mitigate that in these plans? Right, so, so there's a couple of things. For, first of all, let me just, we're talking about something called the Florida bonneted bat is what, what Ron's referring to. Do we to. have a picture of the bonneted bat yeah. we can put up? So they're, this they're is, a, cute. yeah, they, they, they are. They're a very rare bat and pretty amazing creatures in, in, a, in a lot of ways. The, the bat uh, was listed, so we've talked about, hey, this is, we knew something before. We, we, didn't, we, uh, we didn't know something before that we know now. Actually, the bat was listed as endangered species in 2013. So it's, it's 10 years now that this bat has been listed. All of the, everything with Miami Watts has transpired uh, after, after that. So it's not as if this information wasn't known after this, as this project was, was being developed. But the, the bat itself, is um, uh, we've done all sorts of studies, and the studies the studies show, uh, and we were required from the county to show that the, the bat is not going to be harmed by a couple of water slides that extend 45, 75, 80 feet in the in the in the air. I, I want to kind yeah. of broaden that out sure. to your point. Is it about the bat, or does it is it a bit broader of an endangered species? The bat subject? is a focal unit. But there's also the Miami tiger beetle that was believed to be extinct. It wasn't even hadn't been seen for 30 years. And the tiger beetle is found actually been seen on the pavement in that pavement area. Okay, this is an endangered species, and this is all linked. And you know, people are going to say, "Oh, listen, it's just some bugs, a bat, and some butterflies. What's the deal?" All of these things are connected, Glenna. I want to make this very clear. I'm not an extremist. You know, if there's a roach in my house, I step on it. It's over. Okay, I'm not one of the, oh, no, it's got a little bit of... It's a okay. first for this week in South Florida, but okay, let's go. But, but, but I'm just saying, um, because I think extremism in any form is dangerous. Uh, and but I'm, you have a real dilemma here. We have there's, a huge I dilemma mean, you, you, Do you acknowledge yeah. the dilemma? A absolutely, and that whole Section 7 process that the federal government does under the Endangered Species Act, right? The gold standard globally of, of protection for endangered species is all about determining what the impacts are gonna be on, on the animals. So the real question for us is, why not just let that process go forward? We, we don't even understand why there's an opposition to letting the process go forward. To be done in a constructive way, there's, there's hundreds, if not thousands, of Section 7 processes nationwide that are done every year. Um, and so that's really what this, what this amendment's about. It's about allowing that process to move forward in an expeditious way. The federal government says, hey, we're, we're ready to do it. We, we know we messed up. We're, we're prepared to do it. 
let's let's just go through through that process where there's an objective party that's that's looking looking at this just the way it, it has been done many many other places and many other times so right. it goes to this vote on Tuesday and if okay. if the Commission I, I don't really have a read on the Commission do you I think it's a, um, I'm going to use a basketball analogy, a, a jump ball right now. Yeah. Okay, so so, it's, yeah, so yeah. let's say, um, for argument's sake, let's say they vote to continue the process. It's still not a done deal because so much has not been done. That's true. So much has not been done. Uh, but this deal needs to stop now because all the research has been done by the scientists, the people who discovered this bat, the people who have researched this bat, researched the animals, indicates that this is a critical habitat for these animals. So can that process continue with a vote on Tuesday, I guess my question is, because what I expect the commission is going to look at is the economic impact, because South Dade is one of those areas where this commission is looking to put economic drivers, and, and has been, sure. so when, when that happens, oh, yeah, well, that <laughs> what an expression thing. that well, was. Because well, the economic thing, you know, I want to put this in perspective, okay? Yeah. The, 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 the narrative has been we're bringing all these jobs down. To, 304. Right. Well, you know, the zoo presently has over 60 jobs we can't fill. We're trying to fill them, okay? Let's look at the reality of the economy today. When you talk about hospitality, you talk to the restaurants, to the hotels, to the zoo. We cannot fill the positions. So what positions are they bringing? Is that a temporary mm -hmm. labor force issue at the moment? Right. I mean, you yeah. can't look at it. It's a point in time, right? I mean, at any given time, there's been periods of high unemployment throughout the county and, and South Dade. This will be the single, uh, among the top 10 single site employers in South Dade the day, the day it opens um, with some, some real decent pay in terms of, in terms of jobs. So, so it is something that South Dade's been looking for. The reason it's been planned for 27 years from the county is as a result of the, the, the job creation. And, and the reality is we, the, the science is, is not clear. Uh, 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 Ron cites some scientists that say there's 6,000 bats. Our science says 18 bats a night. But if one bat is there, I'm yeah. guessing is it's too not, many it, bats. Listen, you know, the, the firm they oh, hired... We've got 30 seconds. Okay. okay, the fact of the matter is the scientists who dedicate their life to this, they've got no money in this game. The people who have given their life to protect these animals, an old saying that says we've not inherited this earth from our parents, we are borrowing it from our children. Yeah. So Tuesday, you'll both be there at the commission. We will. We will have a crew there at the commission. It is a really great debate, and I hope you'll be back to explain more. Thank you. Appreciate, appreciate the time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you as well. All right, up next, as Miami Art Week comes to an end, we take a dive into plans for an only in South Florida offshore art installation with a critical goal. Stay tuned. As Art Basel and Miami Art Week wrap up, we are taking a dive into one installation that puts the South Florida Ocean Environment center stage. The Reef Line Project is an underwater sculpture park and artificial reef in the making off the shores of South Beach. Louis Aguirre takes us down under. The Reef Line, a visionary sculpture park and artificial reef soon to take shape about 15 feet under the sea, just 600 feet off the shores of South Beach at 4th Street, expanding north for seven miles. To me, art will save us, and this is a statement of what we all can do together collectively and creatively. Jimena Caminos is the founder of the project. What I love about the Reef Line is that it's art and tech. 
and sustainability, so it's art, tech, and science. Caminos and the team have been developing the reef line for three years. Now, finally, the pieces are coming together for the first phase to be activated in the coming months. We already have permits, and we're ready to go into fabrication, and I, we're hoping that by the beginning of the summer, we'll have our first deployment. The first work will be an underwater version of Leandro Ulrich's Order of Importance that premiered behind the Faena during Art Week in 2019. Only these 22 cars will be made of pH-neutral, sustainable concrete. They're built to last. They're designed and engineered to be here in this nearshore environment. Also part of phase one, Petroxestes Heart of Okeanos, a large-scale model of the heart of a blue whale, the largest mammal on the planet. I like to think of it as the heartbeat of the ocean. Instead of blood, it's water pumping in and out and fish swimming in and, out, in and out. And so it represents the life of the ocean. Miami visual artist Carlos Betancourt's Reflections in the Sea Star World will deploy 50 star-shaped elements that will guide snorkelers along the reef track. 3D printing is being tested to scale it and reduce the carbon footprint of production. The starfish, I wanted to use the theme of, the, of marine life a fantasy setting where we can participate, where it can attract people that may not uh, be uh, familiar with what's happening with the coral reef. And that is the intention, to engage the public to take action as climate change continues to ravage what little reefs we have left. We can't wait for reefs to die to wonder where our fish are going to go. Coral reefs are like the cities of the ocean. More than just an underwater museum, the reef-lined structures will mimic natural reefs, creating habitat for marine life to thrive. It's also going to serve as a respite for coral, for fish, and for marine life to have a home. So it's like public housing for fish. And that's a very exciting thing. If you build it, they will come. Reefline COO Shelby Thomas should know. She's also co-founder and CEO of the Ocean Rescue Alliance, a marine conservation nonprofit that's already created six reef sites like this one off the coast of Hollywood, deployed just last year. You see it every time. As soon as the structures go out, literally within a few hours, you come out the next day, there's already fish claiming that as their home. The project will also be space for restoration, working with the University of Miami scientists to outplant corals that can resist heat and disease. A canvas to show the world that we can meet the moment and help nature bounce back. We can come up with creative, fun and sexy solutions to big problems that if we are all together and we, we unite, we can really turn things around. I can't wait to look into the future when this project is finished and see what we help create. I mean, the rest is going to be done by, by nature. We want people to take ownership and pride in where they live and protect this, protect what you love. We want you to fall in love with the ocean and hopefully this is a, a pathway to do that. Protect what you love. The Reef Line is expected to be a huge economic engine when it opens, an ecotourism destination attracting visitors from all over the world. It's a snorkel reef, so it's accessible to all swimmers. There's also a VR component in development that will virtually bring the Reef Line to those who can't make it out onto the water. And it's free. Again, the idea is to make this open to everyone and get everyone to care more about our planet ocean. And this is only the beginning, folks. Phase two is still in development to learn how you can submit your sculpture design for consideration or just to learn more about the project itself. Scan the QR code. It'll take you straight to the Don't Trash Our Treasure page on Local10.com. In the newsroom, I'm Louis Aguirre, Local 10 News. Wow, and Louis also says the project is scheduled to be done and ready by Miami Art Week next year. Wow. All right, stay tuned. We'll be right back.
watch today's interviews or listen to the This Week in South Florida podcast, just scan this QR code right there on your phone and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of local10.com. And you know you are such a big part of this program. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything in the news. Connect with us on social media. Glenna at Glenna. WPLG is social media, Twitter, X, Facebook. Pick your poison. Thank you so much for being here with us this hour. Really appreciate your time. Have a beautiful Sunday. And we'll see you next week.